Our scripture verse this morning is from 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you have not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So how would you, uh, how would you describe this past year? When you look back at 2020, would you describe it as hard? Would you describe it as more of a, a train wreck, dumpster fire? I mean, I've heard all these different... How would you describe the challenges of, of this year? According to a recent survey on American uh, mental health, uh, the numbers were as low as they were in the Great Depression. In another survey, 77% said that they think America, the United States, is in an existential crisis. In other words... They're having a, a, a wonder of, will we survive as a society? And we have conflict at all kinds of levels, right? I mean, political uncertainty, frustration, distrust, racial tensions. And we have the pandemic. We have this uh, division, uh, not just within church, but within our family. Should you wear a mask? Should you not wear a mask? Government overreach or not? What about vaccines, helpful or not? I mean, we have all these divisions. In fact, if the trends kind of continue, you may find churches begin to kind of line up on certain perspectives that are very secondary to the gospel. So how would you, what are we going to do? We're on the precipice of 2021. Uh, I, I admit that 2020, I think we were off balance. I mean, all of us were. I mean, we were hit with this thing. We didn't know what to do with it. And but now we've got 2021 in front of us, and what are we going to do? How are we going to leverage it for the glory of God? I mean, how can we live in a way that will be increasing in our love for God and one another? We can do this. This is kind of like a halftime talk. The first two quarters, maybe we got beat up a little bit. We've got halftime, we've got two more quarters, the game's not over, we've got plenty of time to play. And what are we going to do? Well, I think First Peter has an answer for us. You know, Peter was writing to these churches in north, northern Turkey. They were harassed. They were threatened. They were under pressure. They didn't worship the emperor. They didn't agree to participate in pagan rituals. So they were coming under great pressure. And they were coming under pressure of economic push and threat. They were coming under social ostracizing. They were being pushed out of their community. Some were even being physically threatened. And they were asking the question to Peter, how can we rejoice in the midst of suffering? I mean, how can we move forward with faith and joy in the midst of trial and adversity? It's the same question we have today. It's the same question for us. So in these, in these verses, I, I see three answers that he gives. 
Number one is that we're going to praise God for his great mercy in our salvation. I mean, you can be a suffering church. We're still a worshiping church. We're going to worship God for all that he has done for us, that he caused us to be born again. He, he brought new life to us, so we thank him. That, that's our posture for 2021. And, and then secondly, that we rest in his sovereign design in our sufferings. Listen, he has a plan that will result in our praise and glory and honor at the revealing of Christ. That's for us. So there's a design that he has in our suffering. And then thirdly, we're going we're to increase in our longing for Christ. Uh, people, a Christian is concerned about their affections. Do we love him? And will we grow? Can we be like the flower that blooms in the rocky soil of life? That's what we're called to do. So we'll look at each of these things kind of as we set a vision for 2021. Well, let's look at praising God for his mercy. Look with me at verse 3, if you would. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is interesting, just as kind of a sidebar, how Peter describes God to us. How would you describe God? If you had one word or two words, let's say, to describe God, what, what would you say about him? Would you say he's sovereign or he's powerful? Some of you, perhaps, who have been hurt by the church, you might say he's heavy-handed or he, you know, he's, he's kind of judgmental. Notice how Peter describes him. He's merciful. He's great in mercy. Can you add that attribute to your vocabulary when you think about God this year? He is rich in mercy. Does he judge sin? Yes, he does. But he is merciful beyond our ability to comprehend. And it's his mercy that he's talking about, that he's great in mercy. And he's to be blessed for that. Why? Because he's, he has caused us to be born again, to a living hope. Listen, it wasn't your performance last year that moved him to give you new life. It wasn't your potential coming up for this year that he's giving you new life. It's by his great mercy he has caused us to be born again. Notice the, the, the new birth language there. The only other place you'll see it in the New Testament is in John chapter 3, when Jesus says you must be born again. Peter picks it up and brings it here, and he says, God's giving you new life. What's that mean? It means that he's regenerated you. For the Christian here, through faith in Christ, he has literally taken out your inward bent heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh that you can begin to live differently. He's given you new life. And this is why we have a living hope. We have a living hope. We have a hope that is not tied to the temporal nature of this world. We have a hope that is tied to a living God. And we know that through why? Well, the resurrection, he tells us. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the resurrection, he has put death to death by his own death. So we don't fear death. We don't fear the shortness of life because he's overcome it. The resurrection also reminds us not only do, is our living hope tied to something transcendent, something outside of this life, uh, but we've also been justified in Romans chapter 1. Uh, his being raised from the dead is confirming to us that we've been forgiven, that we now have acceptance with God. You don't need to fear God turning on you in the last moment. He has established himself as your father. He's adopted you through faith in Christ. Those who trust in him alone, you are forgiven. You're adopted. You've been reconciled. 
You have a great hope. You don't have to wonder. It's not a cross your fingers kind of hope. This is a certainty that he has given us. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. Can you imagine Peter? You know, think about Peter for a minute. He fails so miserably the night before Jesus dies. But when he sees Jesus on that Easter morning, well, first he sees, of course, no Jesus. He just sees an empty tomb. And then I'm sure his mind was spinning at revolutions. We can't even imagine. But then he sees him face to face. What kind of hope would you have? He was dead. He's alive. He's alive. He's conquered death. I have a hope that is unshakable now. Uh, so we praise God in the midst of pandemics and in 2021 because in his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Not just that. Look on at verse 4. To an inheritance that is that is imperishable, it's undefiled, it's not fading, it's kept in heaven for you, that he has given us the promise of an inheritance. Now listen, in the Old Testament, you would often hear the people of God being given an inheritance. The inheritance was always the land of Israel. We'll get the land, because in an agrarian society, you need land. You need land to plant crops to survive. But the land of the Old Testament was pointing to a better land. It's pointing to the new heavens and the new earth, a redeemed land. So what he's saying here is God, just because he is incredibly merciful, he has caused us to be born again to have a stake in this new heavens and new earth. People, you are not finished when you stop breathing. The Christian has a stake in a new heavens and a new earth. It's incredible. It won't perish. It won't fade away. It won't be broken, stolen, and Think about all of life. Everything we see and feel is fading. Just start with your own bodies. We've talked about this many times. It's the kindness of God to give you age spots, to let your hair gray, to let your knees hurt. These are kindnesses of God to let you see that your own body is fading. But everything is. The new house, the new car, the paint chips, it breaks, it gets stolen, it becomes obsolete, technology replaced, Generation after generation. There is nothing in this world. There is no one. The stars, the, the jerseys you buy, the shoes you want to wear because they wear, they're going to be passed. Within years, they're going to be forgotten. Everything and everyone will pass away. But this inheritance is imperishable. It's unfading. It won't be defiled. It won't be stained. It won't be ruined because he is keeping it for us. This is why we praise him, even in the middle of a pandemic. Because he has given to us an inheritance that he himself will keep. And no one will threaten it. But you know, this church in Peter's day began to wonder, but will we stick around? Will we collapse? Will we fail in faith? Will we succumb to the pressure? Will we fail under the temptation? And look what he says in verse 5. He says, no. He says, you are kept by God's power, guarded through faith, for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. In other words, where we may be saying, well, that's all great news, but maybe I won't get there. He's saying, no, no, no. Notice at the end of verse 4, he says, kept in heaven for us, and then he says, us who, so, so that, that's a relative pronoun, it relates to us, who by God's power, God is himself is going to guard us. That guard is a military term. It's like building a fortress where you're safe and secure. God will guard his people to make sure that they claim that inheritance that he has kept for them. In other words, he's keeping an inheritance, and he's keeping those who will inherit it. He's going to guard us. And what's he going to guard us from? Well, he's not going to guard us from death. 
Death comes to all. Death came to the Son. Death will come to us. Will it be suffering? No, we're going to see in verse 6 and 7. No, we're going to endure in suffering. What he's guarding us from is failing in faith. Through faith, he's going to guard us from unbelief. He's going to support us even when we begin to fail in faith. Even our faith is a gift of God. You know, you think about Peter. And Peter, of course, is promising uh, that he will stand by Christ. He's bold and firm. I'll never deny you. Jesus says to him in Luke 22, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have returned again, strengthen your brothers. Do you see what he's saying? You will falter, but you won't fail because I'm praying for you. Hebrews 7, he intercedes at the right hand of God for his people. He's praying, we will not fail in faith. People, be encouraged that we may flag and we may falter and we may fall. We're not going to fail. The Christian who has been born again will not fail. They will not falter. Or they may falter. They will not fail in faith. Paul says the same thing to Timothy to encourage the church. He says in the second letter, he says, even if we're faithless, he's faithful. He will not deny himself because we're part of him now. He's our father. This is incredible. This is why we praise God, the Father of the Lord Jesus. You know, John Wesley, uh, the founder of the Methodist Church, was once asked by a group of unbelievers, what's the difference between the people of the world and the people of the Methodist Church? He said, our people die happy. Our people die happy. They'll die. Your people die. Our people die. But we die happy. Why? Because we've been born again to a living hope. So do you have this living hope? I mean, mean, if your answer is, well, I I believe the way you believe, or I I prayed at one point that Jesus would be my, you know, that he would come into my heart, or, you know, I'm trying to go to church, or I feel close to God at times. Well, those may be fine experiences. I don't think it's the evidence I would want to be looking for. The evidence I would want to look for to know that I've been born again according, or that I've been born again to a living hope is that I marvel over his mercy. I mean, I'm I'm amazed at his mercy. Do you ever just scratch your head and wonder why do you love him? Why do you know him? Why do you trust him? Do you you ever just wonder why me? I mean, I think about that song, and and can it be? You know, Charles Wesley, that was John's brother, wrote this song, wrote this hymn, and he began, and can it be that I have an interest in the Savior's blood? Can it be that he did die for me? Do you ever wonder that? Do you ever marvel at his mercy, that the God of the universe would take sinners such as us and save us by his mercy. That's a point of wonderment. Sometimes Carol and I just look at each other and say, why in the world did he even choose us? We're such misfits. But not just marvel over his mercy. Do you see a change in your life over the past year, over the past two years? You know, he has given us new life. He has caused us to be born again. Now, that doesn't mean you become perfect, but it does mean that you're changed. You've been given a new life. Your heart of stone has been taken out. A heart of flesh has been put in. So you begin to live differently. Uh, so, So if you struggle with selfishness, you're moving towards service. If you struggle with greed, you're moving towards generosity. If you tend to lie, you move towards truth. If you tend to be lazy, you move towards work. If you tend to blame shift and make excuses for all your sins, you begin to repent more. 
There should be a change in your life. It may be incremental, it may be slow, it may be two forward, three back, but there's a movement because you've been born again. You have a different life. God has put his own life in you, so there should be a change. That's why I love watching Christmas Carol every year, Dick and Scrooge. You know, there he is. He's a man without hope. He's crying on his grave. You know the scene. He is despairing of life. He has no hope. But then he wakes up. And boy, things change. He wasn't a perfect man, but he was a different man. Uh, that's the evidence. That doesn't save you, but that sure does evidence that something has happened in you outside of yourself. That isn't self-reform. That's not you changing the resolutions of this year. I'm going to do things different. It's a sustained move towards godliness that's prompted by God. And how about what you set your hope on? That'd be more evidence. If you're setting your hope on the pandemic being eradicated, or if you're setting your hope on the governmental restrictions being removed, if you're setting your hope on some vaccine being formed, anytime you set your hope on anything in that world, you're building a sandcastle. You have the expression, what goes up comes down. It's also a great song from Blood, Sweat, and Tears. But we have the expression, what comes up must come down. Right? What, because the law of gravity. The law of gravity pulls everything down. Folks, we here in this room are living under the law of death. We're all going to die. So anything we set our hope in that is made of this world or in this world is going to fail you. Ultimately, it has to. You're going to fail it. It's going to fail you. Our hope can only be in God. This is a transcendent hope that we have been made right with the creator of the universe. He has adopted us, reconciled us. We can praise him in 2021. We can thank him. Even, even if things change for the worse for us, we're going to gather each week and we're going to praise the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because he has given us a hope that transcends the trials of 2021. Now, Peter is a, a realistic man. So he calls us first that in the midst of opposition, how do we rejoice? We think about the great mercy of God and the salvation. Uh, but then second, notice what he does. He tells us to rest in God's sovereign design in our sufferings. Peter's not a pie in the sky, unaware of what's going on. Peter knows the troubles that we're going to have. Look with me at 6 and 7. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it's been tested by fire, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Folks, each of these little phrases is just so packed with hope. You've got to go back and read it again. I, I can't take and explain it all in the short time we have here. But do you notice what he's saying? He's admitting that we're going to have trials. And friends, they're grievous. You know, there's no place for the Christian just to kind of fly above and live above there. It's not a trial for me. Everything's, it's all good. It's all good. No, <clears throat> he says these trials are grievous, and I believe them. I think many of us know by experience they're grievous trials. And by the way, there's all kinds of trials. There isn't just martyrdom is not the only trial. That is one. Some in this world, even right now, are suffering. And they're suffering from being faithful to Christ, physical harm. But there's many other types of trials we face. It can be economic uncertainty in these perilous times. It can be social ostracizing. Do you realize that scholars tell us that the most, at least the most prevalent form of persecution 
that the church experienced in the first 300 years of its existence was being ostracized from society, moved away from community functions, moved out of society. It wasn't martyrdom. It was being excluded by others, being marginalized. We experience that now. If you go up to the social elite of our culture and you say, I have a hope in Jesus Christ who died and rose again, they will think you're the village idiot. They will. You're the village idiot. Every village has one. You're it. People think that way. They ostracize, laugh at you. They have their groups. You're not part of it. There's all kinds of suffering, but not just that kind of suffering. Also, just, just the natural sufferings of living in a world that has fallen away from God. Cancer, disease, sickness. You know, all these are the various forms of suffering. Peter says they will be ours. But here's, here's how he tells us we can rejoice. God has a design for these. A design. He's designed them to both reveal and refine our faith. That's why he's comparing it to gold. You know, when you put gold in the furnace, it, it's revealed by the nature of the, of the other metals that come out of it. It's revealed how true and genuine and valuable it is. That's what happens to us. When we suffer, what's inside begins to come out, if you will. What, what's come out this past year in your life? Has it been anger at God for this? Has it been anger at the government? Has it been angry at, angry at other people? Has it been fear? Fear that your life is, is in deep jeopardy as if COVID can do something and shorten the number of days that God has appointed? What has been the reaction? I, I, I want to I try to convince you that we need this kind of suffering to reveal what's really inside. We tend to always overstate our faith. We think, yeah, I've got faith. I have bold faith. We're like Peter when he, said to, when he said to Jesus, you know, hey, I'll never deny you. Jesus saying, you actually will within a day. Peter needed his faith recalibrated. It, it was revealing to him in the suffering. It was revealed to him that he really didn't have strong faith. So this is a good thing for us. It's a, it, it hurts us. It does. Uh, because we are not at the A level we may thought we were. Maybe we're at a C minus level. That's okay, because God is gracious and he's going to move us up. But he wants us to have a true appraisal of where we are. So suffering does that. It reveals our faith. But it also refines our faith. It refines it. When you put gold in a furnace, the impurities do come up and they get cleaned away. And the goal becomes more pure. Your faith becomes more pure in suffering. How so? Well, think about it for a minute. When you experience suffering, your priorities change. You get the word next week that you have terminal cancer. And you are an upward mover in the company, and you are pushing for success and money and financial security. Your priorities are going to change in a moment. I've seen it happen time and time again to people that have been told they have now limited time to live. Their priorities just often invert. So suffering does that. God is helping us get right priorities. God wins us away from selfishness. You know, when, when, when a friend of yours or somebody that you don't even like gets the nod that they may not be on this earth much longer, 
doesn't compassion, doesn't, doesn't your criticism and anger and bitterness, doesn't it soften towards them and you begin to even move with compassion towards them? God's drawing out the sin in our life. Through some, isn't this happening in the pandemic? When physical pain comes to us, we begin to see the fragility of our life. You think about it. One microscopic virus from one town in one country shuts the world down. Do you know when oh, the whole world kind of went in that 30-day global lockdown? Uh, geologists said that the earth wasn't shaking as much on its orbit because all businesses, all planes, all activity, factories, uh, all these things, or much, many of these things shut down. And they could tell that the vibrations of the earth decreased from one microscopic virus from one town. Folks, we are not that tough. And suffering reminds us, particularly physical suffering, reminds us, shows us that we're fading. This is God's mercy to us. God has a design to refine and reveal our faith. So we sang this hymn a while back by John Newton. We sang it once. I, I think I may have told Jeremy, please don't ever sing it again. It absolutely wrecked me because it exposed so much in me. But let me give you the last stanza of this. And, and, and the, the hymn is being sung as if God is speaking to us. So these are the words of God explaining his purposes. And, and the song is, I ask the Lord that I might grow. He says, these inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and to break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thy all in me. So, so God's saying, I employ inward trials to pull you from selfishness and pride. And I want to set you free from yourself. I want to break the schemes of earthly joy. If you're going to try to find all your joy there, I will break that so that you may find your all in me. It's, it's a beautiful prayer and it's a hard prayer. In fact, John Rippon, the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London in the, in the mid-19th century, the pastor before Charles Spurgeon was the pastor there. He wrote the song, How Firm a Foundation. We sing it when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie. My grace, all sufficient, shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. He's changing us. We need these. God has designed these. Let me give you one more from our beloved Spurgeon. Untested faith may be true faith, but it's sure to be small faith, and it's likely to remain little as long, it is with, as long as it is without trials. Faith never prospers so well as when all things are against her. Temptists are her trainers, and bolts of lightning are her illuminators. No flowers are as lovely a blue as those that grow at the foot of the frozen glacier. No stars gleam as brightly. As those that glisten in the polar sky. No water tastes as sweet as that which springs up in the desert sand. And no faith is so precious as that which lives in triumphs and adversity. That's what God has for us. It's, it's hard to understand. There's no doubt about that. We can't understand all the details of it, 
But he says, this is for your glory and your honor and your joy at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, so this is definitely a, a long-term game we're playing here. It's a long-term game. But at the revelation of Jesus Christ, those through suffering will receive glory, honor, and praise from God himself. God honoring us, praising, glorifying us. It's hard to imagine. So when we look at 2021, there may be adversity ahead. There may be trials ahead. We have to see God has designed it. Now, how do we, so how do we rest in this sovereign design? Well, let's be thankful. Let's be thankful that, that trials and adversity are under his design. Whether you feel good about saying God causes it or God allows it, what I'm telling you is it's not just running amok, untethered. Trials just don't, they don't, they're not like the weather in North Carolina. You know, Friday coming home from a rehearsal dinner, it's 40 degrees, driving rain, freezing. The next day it's sunny and 67. Go figure. The trials don't work that way. They don't come in and out of our life and throw us upside down. God has designed these to be for our glory and our praise and our joy. They're for us, to help us. We want to be thankful. Can you imagine, just imagine with me, if we lived in a universe where trials had free reign, they can pop in your life anytime they want. Pop in, pop out. They can bring a load of hurt. They can bring partial hurt. You think about it. You got one of two options, folks. Either they're tethered to God and he's designing them for your good or they're running free. And if they're running free, I couldn't get out of bed. So we can be thankful that they're under his design and they're only going to do what he wants them to do. So I'm thankful for that. The other way we can rest is let's be patient to understand suffering. Suffering is hard to understand. In the here and the now, it's hard to understand. We have to ask God for wisdom. We have to ask God to help us understand. And you know what? God invites that. God invites you to cry out to him for wisdom. You know, in James chapter 1, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials and the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result and proven character. If any of you lack wisdom, he says in verse 5, let him ask, and he'll give it without reproach. Do you see how he tethers, consider it joy in the midst of trials, but if you need wisdom, ask him, and he'll give it without reproach. God is kind that way. We have to cry out, and you know what? I, I would say to you, ask God, but then ask another saint in this church. Ask one of God's people. If you're suffering and you really have trouble processing the suffering that you're going through, then get a saint in this church who's older, who has gone through trials and adversity, and ask them, how have you learned contentment in the midst of the trials you've walked through? The saints are the educators. The older saints are to be the educators of those who are walking through trials for the first and the second and the third time. Every church, and we have them here, and I'm thankful for that. I would also say be prepared to help others suffering. We can rest in a sovereign design by being helpful to others. Now, let me put a huge caveat here. I'm not saying that when someone's suffering, it's your responsibility to go up and drop the Romans 8 bomb. Hey, it's all going to work out for good. It's okay. Everything's going to be great for you. When people are suffering, suffering tends to isolate us from others, and we feel as if nobody understands what we're feeling. And so silence, love, Simple ministry of presence is helpful. Try to empathize and understand how they are hurting, even if you haven't experienced it in the same way. We want to try to understand they are hurting. 
So we don't want to come in and when people come in and say, it's all going to work out great. It's all going to be fine. You just got to trust God on this one. That could be very damaging to a person's soul. But I do want to say this. There is a place that we do have to ultimately engage with people in helping instruct and lead them through their suffering. Now, I do want to warn you, you can say the right thing at the right time to a person suffering, and they'll thank you for it. And you can say the right thing at the right time, and they'll explode on you. And that's just the nature of ministry. They could be, maybe they spoke to somebody before you that rankled them, or I don't know, it, it, it doesn't always go as you think it ought to go. But we still have to cautiously, lovingly, graciously, slowly engage. <clears throat> That's what Peter's doing. Do You see, Peter is instructing this church in their trial. He's not just sitting for six months throwing dust on his head and weeping with them. He is moving towards instruction, and we as a church, we are pilgrims traveling together. We are going to be experiencing difficulty and trial. We need to help each other in this journey. We just want to do it gently, cautiously, graciously. But there is a role for us. This is why I love preaching about it right now, because you may not be suffering, but this is instruction that you will need when you enter it. So, 2021. It may have adversity ahead. We are a worshiping church, even though we may be a suffering church. And we're a church that is going to rest in God's design for the adversity that we may face. We will face it this year, people. We will. I don't know if it will be at a national level. It may just be at a personal level. But God has a design, and the design is for your glory and your good and your honor. That's by faith. That's by faith. You know, as I even say that, you know, if, if you're here and you really are waffling on the faith, don't neglect the mercy of God. Don't neglect it. Appeal to him. Repent. What faith is, it isn't just a cognitive belief, and yeah, I agree with these things. Faith is actually repentance. It's actually us coming to God, saying, God, I am in massive need for you to aid, for you to save me. Save me from myself. And it really, there's no formula. It's just a crying out to God. You know, there was the man in the temple that Jesus pointed out that just beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me. And he went home justified, Jesus said. Okay, so the third thing, how are we going to look at 2021? I want to long in a deepening love for the Savior. Long in a deepening love for the Savior in the midst of adversity. Look with me at 8 and 9. <clears throat> These are some of my favorite verses in the Bible. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. You love him. And though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Can you imagine this church? <clears throat> so here, you're a small little fledgling church in northern Turkey. You know, maybe it's around, <clears throat> I don't know, 60 A.D., you know, 30 years past the death of Christ. You're a new church. You're a bunch of Gentiles. You've never seen Jesus. You never saw him, heard his ministry. You never saw him live, you never saw him die, you didn't see him rise. <clears throat> and yet he says to them, and they're suffering, and he says to them, you haven't seen him, but you love him. You love him. There's their affections for the Savior. This isn't an obedience to God, the kind of a dutiful obedience, like a soldier that doesn't like his commanding officer. This is an adoring love. This is, I love him, and I'll do anything. 
It's, it's the heart is stoked with fire towards Christ. I mean, it's like the pilgrim who's making the journey. And, and, and the journey's been hard. It's been a lot of uphill climbs, and it's been a lot of over-difficult rocks. But he knows where he's going, and, he, and he, he loves the destination, and he's going there. When he gets to the destination, he's going to be very, very excited. You know, as we go through year after year after year, do you check the pulse of your affections? Do you love him? I mean, do you love what Christ has done to obtain the salvation of our souls? Affections are so critical. So, you know, when you drive out west, one time I flew to Denver and <clears throat> took a car out and went skiing in the Rockies, and uh, at least from the Denver airport, uh, at least where we were going in the Rockies, uh, they seemed tall, big, yeah, absolutely. But as we got closer they became more impressive and more and more. And then you get in them and it's massive. It, it, the grandeur of the Rockies were huge. But as you get closer, they grow in size and beauty and glory. That's the way it should be for us. As we march through year after year after year, Christ ought to be getting bigger and more beautiful and more incredible for us. Uh, we're seeing him and more of it. We're, we're about to see him. He should be, we should be growing in love for him. Now see, if you, if you love Christ for simply what he's done for you, then he just simply becomes a means to an end. But, but if you love him because he's beautiful, then there's a joy in him that is beyond just what he's done, but who he is. And, and, and that's where the love begins to move. Yeah, Carol and I just celebrated 35 years of marriage. We're way past loving each other what we do for each other. It's who she is that I love. It's her character. It's her person. It's who she is. That's the way it's to be with us. Though you don't see him, you love him. Folks, the affections, the growing affections are evidence that you have, that God has caused you to be born again to a living hope. You have affections for him. You know, Jonathan Edwards, that great theological mind in New England in the 18th century, he wrote a whole book, and the Puritans did that. They tended to write books on one verse. He wrote Religious Affections, huge book, on this verse. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. The affections are important. Listen to what he said. He says this on page 26. He says, as affections are a necessary part of human nature, so holy affections are a necessary part of true religion. Now, think about this with me. It makes total sense. So, as affections are part of our human nature. Can you imagine a human being without any affections? They have no affections. They're not happy, they're not sad, they don't get angry, they don't get, they don't get joyous. There's no affections. We would say, that's almost dead. Dead. You want affections. You want your spouse to have affections. You want your spouse to have right affections, increasing affections. As affections are as natural to human life, so are holy affections natural to religion. He goes on and he says, He that has doctrinal knowledge and speculation only without affection never is engaged in the business of religion. The essence of all true religion lies in holy love. So think about Peter. Uh, Peter sees Jesus on the beach after the resurrection and uh, he identifies them because remember Jesus says, tossed the net on the other side of the boat and all of a sudden fish weren't on the one side but there were a load of them on the other side. And they know that's Jesus. And so what's Peter do? Peter jumps into the water and he swims to him. I mean, you, you see the love. And what does Jesus ask him? 
Do you love me? Do you love me? He'll ask you that. That's why I ask you every year. Do you love him? Do you love him more? Trying to prepare you. Do you love him more? Maybe some of you don't. Or you feel like your love is ambivalent or it's varied. Or maybe for some you just feel like it's dead. Folks, let me implore you to cry out to God to give you a taste of these heavenly realities. Cry out to him, not once, a thousand times. If you really want it, a thousand times. You cry out till he gives you taste buds. He will. If he's moved you to cry out to him, he will give you the taste buds. Cry out for a desire. Begin to cry. And then also engage. Engage with a brother or sister in this church. Grab one person. Let's read the Bible. Blair has posted um, a note for us on the website about all these different reading plans. To know God is to love God. You can't grow in knowledge without growing in love. So, so grab some, pray with somebody, read the scriptures. There is the engagement of our, of our affections, that we play a role. We are called to participate. The, the things like praying and reading the Bible and fasting and meditating, folks, I, I know those seem passe. They seem in our, in our world that runs at the speed of the Internet. It seems so non-flashy. They are tried and true, just like exercise helps you get in shape. You would think a person a fool for wanting to get in shape, but not wanting to exercise. And so to think that our devotion to God is going to increase without any involvement, as if it's just going to come upon us, seems silly. And then last, I would say contemplate the cross. To increase affections, contemplate the cross. Think about what he has done. Think about what he's done for you. Think about where you were. <clears throat> Another Puritan has wisdom for us. He says, are you content to follow Jesus from a distance? Oh, let me affectionately warn you. For it's a grievous thing when we can live contentedly without the present enjoyment of the Savior's face. Let us work to feel what an evil thing it is. Little love to a dying Savior. Little joy in a precious Jesus, little fellowship with the beloved. Go at once to the cross. There and there only can you get your spirit aroused. No matter how hard, how insensible, how dead we may have become, let's go again in all our rags and poverty, the defilement of our natural condition. Let's clasp that cross. The more we dwell where the cries the more we dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard, the more noble our lives become. Nothing puts life into men and women like a dying Savior. Go to the cross. Ask him, arouse my soul. Arouse my spirit that I might love you. So we have a whole year, by God's grace, ahead of us. Maybe. We have a whole year. How are we going to live? He, he tells us here. We're going we're to worship God for his merciful salvation. No matter what comes to us, we will be a worshiping church. We will be a church that looks and to rest in God's design for the adversity that we face, that it will return to us glory and honor. 
That takes faith. And that we want to grow in our affections for him. Let me pray for us. Father, I do thank you for the grace that you've given to us in this word. Thank you for being so intimately acquainted in our lives that you, like a, like a perfect surgeon, working all things out towards our good and your glory at the same time, tying the two inextricably together. Father, give us faith to walk with joy, with trust in your design, and give us, let us be a church that has increasing devotion and love for the Son. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, we're about to celebrate communion. If I can orient your mind, again, we're still kind of doing it in this awkward way, so I, I just want to take a moment and have us think through what we're doing. The bread and the wine, they remind us of a broken body, and it was broken under the weight of our sins, and blood that was shed for us. Okay, the bread and the wine, remember, we heard this two months ago, it established a covenant, a, a permanent covenant, a new covenant. We don't need to keep sacrificing the bulls and goats. There is one sacrifice, it's been perfect. Jesus Christ, laying down his life, established a relationship between you and God, me and God, us and God, that he is now our father. We're forgiven, we're loved forever. You never stop being a son or a daughter even though you may sin against your parent. And so this is a permanent relationship. We're thankful for it. The bread and the cup, they remind us of that. But that covenant that God has established with us is a covenant that is with each of us. So Jesus, when he laid down his life, he says that he, he made the two one. He brought about a solidarity. He brought about a unity among the brothers and sisters who come to this table. There is a unity there. there not a uniformity and not a sameness. We want to be different, but there's a unity around the gospel that we all share. And it's that idea that births our church covenant. Our church covenant is our agreement to walk out both the practical and biblical implications of what, is it, what does it mean to come to God in his covenant established by Christ. What does it mean for each other? We're not all just individual persons relating to God. No, he calls us into a family. And so we have a covenant. We have promises that we've made to each other. All of us agreed to this in joining this church. So each year we want to go through this covenant and remind ourselves both of what we need to do, but also repent of what we did not do. And so I just want to read through the covenant for you. You have it in your bulletin if you would pull it out and read along with me. And these are the things that we have promised to God and to one another that we would do. Now, many of these things we may not have done. And let me encourage you, that ought to draw you to repentance because you had made a promise. And many of these things we need to begin doing in greater earnest. So we'll ask for God's grace to do that very thing. So let me start with loving God's glory, attending church faithfully, giving regularly, praying earnestly for the health and the growth of the members of this church. One precious saint every month, when my name comes up, tells me that she prays for me. I tell you, puts air in my balloon like nothing else does. She's honoring the covenant here. Living a God-centered life. Bringing up children as may be entrusted to my care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Following the leadership of the church and submitting to principles of church restoration. This has been challenged in COVID. 
seeking honest and open communication with the leadership of the church when I have concerns. That's what we're called to do. It's a promise we make. Being slow to take offense. Being quick to forgive and seek forgiveness. Exercising care and watchfulness over others. To be involved in the saints, in the lives of the saints in this church. You may have a thousand friends elsewhere, but these are the folks that you've covenanted with. Refusing to participate in gossip. Serving the ministry of the church by discovering my gifts. What are you doing for this church with your gifts? Developing a servant's heart. Loving and praying for all believers in the Lord Jesus. Inviting the unchurched to attend and warmly welcoming those who visit. Not just speaking to your friends, but to those you don't know. Walking circumspectly, giving thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Endeavoring by example through words, service, and prayer to proclaim to others that Jesus Christ is the Savior and Lord. Talking to your neighbors. This is, this is steep. This is done by the Spirit of God. Let's take a moment now and just perhaps confess to God one or two things that maybe are missing in your life from this list and ask for grace that we might walk in them.